well. Uh, last Sunday, we began our Advent weeks of worship as Christmas time approaches. And uh, for these Advent Sundays, like I mentioned earlier, we're taking some time to place ourselves in the historical flow of Christian tradition in that we're taking our scripture readings during the service and even our, our confession of sin that we do in the middle of the service and then our preaching text. We're taking all of these things from the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, which is a, a book that compiled uh, various scripture readings and prayers to help uh, people worship on Sunday mornings. It's the Anglican prayer book. Uh, and so the psalm that we read at the beginning of our service today for our call to worship and then the wording of our corporate confession today and now this text that we're going to study, uh, these have all been put together for the second Sunday of Advent uh, in that 1549 edition. And so as we come to these passages, as we think about them, we place ourselves in the, in the tradition of Advent worship uh, that now goes back almost for 500 years as Christians have gone before us and worshiped during this a unique time of the year. And, and we started seeing the unique value that can come from placing ourselves in these historical traditions. We started seeing this last week as we uh, considered the liturgy that was laid out for us in that book of common prayer and, and, and recognized that uh, they might not immediately strike us as Christmassy type passages that are there for us. Um, but, but then again, as we give our attention to them, we see the wisdom that is reflected there. So last week, uh, we, we saw how we're renewed in this life of love that we're saved to live. As, as we think about what it means that Jesus came and died for us, that he procured newness of life for us. The Christmas season isn't just about the fact that Jesus came and died and paid the price for our sins. Obviously, that is a, a central truth and a critical truth for the Christmas season. In fact, we read about it in our, in our pardon today, 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. So central to our understanding of why Jesus came, uh, central to our celebration at Christmas time, is the reality of Christ's atoning sacrifice. He came to pay the price of sin that we owe in order that we could be rescued from the penalty of sin. But that's not the only thing that Jesus did by saving us. And saving us, as we saw last week, he also saved us so that we could now be empowered by the Holy Spirit and live out the law of love. We could engage with one another, engage with others around us in, in meaningful and self-giving kinds of ways, ultimately fulfilling God's instruction to us as humanity, that we would care for one another according to God's law. So we talked about that last time, and, and we see in that how, how meaningful that is to consider at Christmas time, the purpose that Jesus saved us for there. And then as we come to uh, the text this time, uh, we, we again do come to some passages that might not sound so Christmassy to begin with, especially Psalm 120, which was what we, what we started the service with today. Uh, the psalmist starts there by saying things like, woe is me because I've dwelt too long with those who hate peace. Uh, it almost startles us to read that at Christmas time. A passage like that seems so far removed from, from the Christmas cheer we'd expect to hear during this season. Uh, but again, as we submit ourselves to the wisdom of those who've gone before, there's actually great Advent help to be had, even in a consideration of Psalm 120 as we began things today. Because while last week we were renewed in a life of love as we follow Jesus, uh, this week we have passages that serve to renew us in unity as God's people because of Jesus. So, so there's a thematic focus in the second week of Advent liturgy on the harmony and unity and willing welcome that exists 
among God's people because Jesus Christ came and saved us into this family of God. Which, which might uh, not at first seem like a particular Christmas theme, uh, this, this unity of God's people, except that when we start to think about it, it is a subject that regularly surfaces during the Christmas season. In fact, in fact, even in a song we sang earlier, this comes up, and God rest you merry gentlemen. So, so the very first, uh, first verse of that song, which, which we know, says, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on, on Christmas Day to do what? Well, to save us all from Satan's power while we had gone astray, O tidings of comfort and joy. So the first verse of that song is about how Jesus came and saved us from the, from the grip of Satan when we were turned away from God. Obviously, that's a great big central gospel truth, a huge uh, celebration component of our, of our Christmas season. But then listen to the last verse of the song as we sang. He said, the, the hymn writer says, Now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place. And with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace this holy tide of Christmas. All others doth deface. Oh, tidings of comfort. So, so, so we hear that theme developing. The song starts by singing about how Jesus has come and brought this extraordinary deliverance for us from the grip of, of Satan, from the grip of sin. And, and, and then where does the song finish? Well, it finishes speaking about how Jesus also brings us peace with one another as God's people as we sing about the glad tidings of Christmas. So with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace this holy tide of Christmas. We embrace this message of Christmas time, unified as God's people together. So harmony among God's people, because Jesus came and saved us, which is an extraordinary theme to think about at Christmas time, and which also starts to make sense of why in the world we would ever start an Advent service with Psalm 120. Uh, Psalm 120 is, is on the one hand a, a, a fairly dark psalm. It's a lament. Uh, the psalmist is deeply discouraged, and he's discouraged because the people of God around him are speaking deceitful things about him. They have lying lips, he says. So, so the psalmist is lamenting the fact that he's, he's living around people who have hated peace for too long. That's what he says. And then, so this song, it must have been written at a time in Israel's history when at the very least the, the, the poet here is, is standing in a place of righteously attempting to be faithful to God, but he's being bad-mouthed by those who are acting in contrary ways. He's being bad-mouthed by God's own people. So there's not harmony among the people of God, but in, instead people are launching these attacks against him with their crooked and deceitful kind of speech, which is actually why the psalmist says what he says about, uh, about geography. It, it strikes us as, as, what in the world would this even mean? But remember how he says, uh, what, what misery that I have stayed in Meshech, that I've lived among the tents of Keter? Well, like what? Well, what, what does that even mean to us? Except it's helpful to know that those two places are geographically completely opposite. So you can't live in both at the same time. And they're in opposite and far directions from Jerusalem. So, so the, psalm, the psalmist, he's singing Psalm 120, which is a psalm of ascent. It's, one of the, it's the first psalm of ascent that people would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem to worship. And what is the psalmist saying? He's saying, I might as well be living as far away from the centralized worship of God's people as possible for all the strife that I'm filled with in my life being around God's people. So, so, so there he is in this place where there should be unified worship under the living God. And he says, you know, I might as well, I might as well be out in Kedar. For all, for all that it matters. 
because there's no unity of God's people here. They're, 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 all, they're all against me. So to begin with Psalm 120 today is to begin with a lament about disunity. It is to start out with, with a lament about discord that can exist among the people of God, which, which we can say in all honesty is a very realistic place to start at times. Because the people of God can very much be out of harmony with each other, even as we claim to follow Christ. Now, now in saying that, I want to just put a little asterisk there and, and, and make a footnote to our study today. Because, because I do want to say this, and that all we're addressing today about the unity of God's people, we, we can be so thankful for the unity we share together here as a church. It is an extraordinary gift, even as Paul's going to say here. This harmony is a gift that comes from God, and it's a gift we enjoy at Christ Church. God has been very gracious to us in bringing us together as a group that's loving, You're a group that overlooks offenses, a group that's not manipulative, but ready to love and love really well. So, so as we come to this study on, on harmony and welcoming and, and unity among God's people, I, I just want to put this asterisk in there and say we can take this as preventative medicine. Uh, just as just as my wife will tell me at times, uh, who's, who's you know she studies these things. Preventative medicine is maybe the most important medicine at all, of all because it keeps us healthy <laughs> rather than having to deal with us once we're sick. So so as we think about unity, I would just say that even just pastorally, I know Jason and Josh would echo this. They're just so thankful for the loving unity that that we share here as a church. But at the same time, we need words like this because it is actually through the scriptures that God continues to work that unity that we enjoy among us as the same. So, so we need this word this morning. So putting all that in our mind, filing that just wherever we need to file it, we can come back to Psalm 120 and the disunity that can exist among the people of God, which, which might not sound much like a topic that keeps us in the holiday spirit, but it is a very realistic thing to consider because no doubt we've, if, especially if we've been within the church community at large for, for a while, some of us for years and years, we have experienced the discord that can exist among God's people. One, one very seasoned pastor, um, it was John Stott, actually. I wasn't going to say the name because I quoted him last week too, but I'll just quote him again. John Stott is good. Uh, he, he makes this comment about three main threats to the church. He, he, said, he says, one is persecution from the outside. Another is deception on the inside. And a third is the threat of division into two sides. So those are, those are the things that threaten us as the church. Persecution from the outside, deception on the inside, and then finally, division into two sides, disunity. And, and so as we think about these things, we hear Psalm 120 at the beginning of the service, and, and it does leave us with a sense of lament over the fact that this discord and a, and a lack of peace can exist in the community of God's people. But, but as we continue to move through the selected scriptures for Advent Sunday number two liturgy, Romans 15, 4 to 13 is then set before us to bring relief from this disunity that we're lamenting. So, so we can start with that lament. But as we move through these passages, we come to a text here that gives us encouragement in the fact that Jesus didn't only come to save us from our sins. And Jesus didn't only come so that we could live out the law of love in our day to day lives. But Jesus also came to unite us together and even renew us in that unity as God's people, not least of all with those who we might not expect to ever be involved with. Jesus came to unify us as the people of God. And so in this passage, we have encouragement in our unified life of faith under God as his people because Jesus came, which, of course, is very Christmas. 
This is what Jesus came to do for us. He came to bring us together as part of God's family. And so if you look at the passage, we're going to start in on verse 4 of Romans 15. And, and we're going to start in this, we can call it being renewed in unity. And this is something that the Apostle Paul first uh, grounds in Scripture, or at least he first gives us some instruction in the Scriptures before he moves on to the fullness of what he's going to teach us here. Um, which is, which is actually something very, very helpful to see. Um, th- th- there was a study this year published in, in Education Sciences Journal, which is, I, I promise, not the most exciting journal you've ever read, but, but it does have some interesting articles from time to time. Uh, but this year they published a paper entitled Factors That Foster Student Performance in Junior High Classrooms. Does that sound exciting? Factors That Foster Student Performance in Junior High Classrooms. If you've ever been in a junior high classroom, any level of performance is exciting, right? But, but so what helps middle school kids learn is, is what the article is about. And, and in the beginning of the article, there was this survey of six different educational theory books, and then they bulleted out uh, what each author said about effective education. Like here are the six things that make, make things go well in a middle school classroom. And, and it was all very much what you'd expect. Many, many common themes came out. So they talked about connecting with students and how important that is. They talked about varying your instructional methods, the necessity of student involvement in the lessons, all these different kinds of things. Except it was interesting that for all the common elements listed, only one of those authors focused specifically on lesson structure. Well, like specifically how you put the beginning, middle, and end of a lesson together to help foster student learning, uh, which, which was just interesting to notice. Um, because it, it came to my mind as I was reading verse 4 here and just being struck by the fact that Paul would have appreciated how at least one of those educational theorists knew that, edu- that, that lesson structure was very critical to people's learning because, because Paul puts together his instruction in such a purposeful and effective way as he writes. And we see this as we read Paul's letters. He, he's, he's very structural as he sets foundations and pillars down for our thinking as he goes along. And then he, and then he gives us good structure for, for learning from each, uh, on each point along the way. And then we very much see this here because before Paul takes different scripture references to help underpin the fact that we're unified as God's people. So in the last section of this, you see probably in your Bible, all these bold, all these bold Old Testament references in, in verses 7 to 13 there at the end. Before Paul does that, applying all those scripture references, he structures his lesson in such a way that that begins by underpinning the importance of scripture to begin with. So it's not like he just jumps in there and says, I need you to just trust me on this. But he starts by saying, let's just have a brief word about what what the nature of the Bible really is. When we're quoting the scripture, what what are we doing when we come to the Bible and have it affect us? And so if you look at verse four, I'll I'll just read it again, because listen, listen to what Paul says here. Uh, which is just a world of sermons that we're, I'm working really hard to resist. But, but this is so, so critical. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Okay, so, so Paul is he's going to appeal to the scriptures to underpin the unity of God's people. But before he does that, he gives us this footing and why that's even important to do. What, what do the scriptures even provide for us? And, and we'll just pull out two things. We'll see if I can keep it at two. But there's two big things here that jump out right away. First of all, we should note that when Paul refers to the scripture here, actually, there'll be three. We're already up to three. We just started. But, but we should note right away 
that, that when he's speaking about the scriptures here, Paul is referencing the Old Testament, right? Of course, what he says here applies to the New Testament as well. But when he's speaking about the scriptures, what is the Bible that Paul has? Well, at this time, the New Testament hadn't, hadn't been fully formed and recognized yet in the history of God's people. So the Bible that Paul preached and taught from was the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. And, and what he begins by saying is that the scriptures written in history past, the scriptures are presently relevant. Whatever was written in the past was written for what? Our instruction, he said. So, so whatever else that means, we're reminded that the Old Testament scriptures are not mere religious literature to be studied in the dusty end of a library by scholars or something like that. The Old Testament is written for our contemporary instruction. It has present relevance to our lives, which, which I think is obvious to us as we study the Bible. Haven't we experienced the present relevance of a book like 1 Samuel in our regular studies? Right? A, a book written about people living long, long ago and in a land far, far away, but it's affected us, hasn't it? It's affected me as, as, I've, as I've studied it. The truth of the scriptures, not least of all the truth of the Old Testament scriptures, comes with contemporary power to our lives. And that makes total sense given the next thing that Paul tells us. Because it's not just that scriptures are presently relevant, but they're given to induce hope in our lives. Paul says they were written so that we may have hope. Now, now, hope in the Bible isn't a matter of something that we'd like to see happen, but it not, might not happen. You know, like, I hope we get a foot of snow. Right? I, I know very well that might not happen. I can still say that, and that makes sense to us. But biblical hope is different than that. Biblical hope isn't a wish for something that may or may not happen. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of the future good that God has promised. That's what it means to hope in biblical categories. A confident expectation in the future good that God has promised. Uh, that, that's hope in a, in a big, big biblical sense. In fact, if you want to think about that some more, you can read Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8 for your homework and meditate on the fact that hope is a major theme in that section that Paul builds out for us. That, that's, that's hope. So, so the scriptures, they come to us with contemporary relevance to bolster our confidence in the good that God has promised will take place. That's, what, that's one thing the Bible does for us. And the scriptures do this, you notice, as they affect our endurance and encouragement. So, so the Bible helps our hope as it stimulates these two things, endurance and encouragement. Christian endurance, we know what that is. We live that out on a daily basis. Christian endurance is a matter of persistence and discipline, isn't it? We keep going. So, so, so through, through the Bible, the Lord speaks to us and says things like, even though the days may be hard and even though there may be confusion and sorrow and, and, and difficulties that mark our experience, we keep going. We don't stop because God's good promise is guaranteed. That hope helps us endure in the now. We keep on because we know that there is this glorious uh, outcome that's awaiting us through Christ. And so we, we exercise endurance. The scriptures help stimulate that. And the, and the Bible doesn't just help stimulate our endurance, but it also encourages us in general. So, so the truths of Scripture provide us with extraordinary and comforting promises to hold on to as we walk the path of faith. The, the, the purposes of God can't be thwarted. He's going to preserve you. He's going to save you. We're encouraged by those promises. We're encouraged as we've studied how the Lord has preserved David uh, during the situations that he's been in. So, so we need our Bibles, and, and not just the New Testament, but we need the Old Testament too. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. 
uh, because through the historical scriptures, we are affected in our present experience in such a way uh, so, so as to bring assured hope as we press on in the guarantee of God's promises. This has worked in our heart, which is such a helpful reminder from Paul on so many levels, not, not least of all, just understanding what the point of the Bible really is. And then this is absolutely critical to our maturity and even to our well-being at times in, in the Christian life. Because for, for, for the believer who's desiring to pursue Christ faithfully, for the one who's seeking to walk in his way, yielding to the Spirit of God and, and all that renewing work that happens in our life, the Bible is, is a book that, that should be giving us hope constantly. So, so one sure indicator that a person is teaching or applying the Bible incorrectly is if you're feeling hopeless. That's just a good gauge to have in your mind. If when things are done, if the amen and the sermon is over and we step away and you are feeling hopeless, that means the person in this place has not properly done their job because that is not where the scriptures of God are intended to leave us. The scriptures of God bring conviction. The scriptures of God can even bring confusion to us at times. But ultimately, as we think about the truth of God and the bigness of what it ultimately reveals to us about Christ, in fact, we know the scriptures are all pointing that way. It's a comment about Christ from Psalm 69 that has been the foray into this conversation earlier in Romans 15. So they're, they're all pointing us to Jesus. And as we consider the truth of scriptures, because of that reality, they always leave us with hope. If we're not left with hope, we're not being taught the Bible properly, and we're not reading the Bible properly. And, and, and there's a million different ways we could illustrate this. One of one big way, it's almost, it's almost humorous if it weren't so sorrowful, which is what you see happening so often with things like end times discussion and scares along the lines of, 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 of the book of Revelation. If we notice that there's the there's the YouTube videos, there's all the different stuff with the people coming on and saying, oh, it's all terror and horribleness and everything's all falling apart. It's, it's all here in Revelation. We, we can immediately be checked in our spirit by that because we know the purpose of God's word, not least of all apocalyptic literature, the purpose of God's word is to encourage the saints, encourage the saints to overcome, encourage the saints to conquer, encourage the saints to pursue the way of Christ because he's the victorious one and we belong to him. And so when we're reading the Bible, when we're hearing people say things about the Bible, if we're left not in a encouraged, not in a stimulated in my endurance kind of hope-filled state, we can rest assured that we have not been taught the Bible properly or we're not reading it properly. And we can go back and say, thank you for Jesus. And please now encourage me in your truth as we come back to the Bible for ourselves. So that's just critical to how we think about it. And that's a point that Paul is making here. This is here for our hope. And that hope should mark out our study, our preaching, our discussions around scripture. The scriptures leave us with hope because they point to Jesus. If the scriptures pointed to me, if they pointed to you, that would be very discouraging. Me on my best day, you on your best day, me on my worst, you on whatever. They point to Jesus, which leaves us in this place of, of obviously renewed encouragement constantly because of who he is. And so uh, we, 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 we put all this together and realize that Paul is, is setting, something, setting something down that's very important uh, that he's going to build on as he talks about now unity and some of these things. But, but, but even as we come to this in, in churches so often, there can be division and fighting and, and manipulating that goes on in the church because the scriptures haven't left people in a hope-filled state. 
Isn't that the case? There's discouragement where we feel like we, we've got to be the ones who hold all these things together. We've got to be the ones who have the program that works. We've got to be the ones. And all of a sudden, instead of putting our hope in God and the good things that he gives and the strength that he supplies, we're starting to hope in ourselves. And what does that do to our relationships with one another? Oh, we start to think our way is the most important way. My agenda is, man, if we don't do this, then it's all going to be over. We start to be self-focused, which is a total disaster in terms of unity. But instead, you see the scriptures come and they are the thing. They're the truth. That's God's truth that gives us hope. So if, if Paul begins here by speaking about unity, he, he begins by grounding us in, in the nature of what scripture is intended to do. And then he does what we are not surprised by in verses five to six, because he moves to speak now or, or he moves now to make this request for unity as he prays to God. So he, so he moves from grounding us in the scriptures before he speaks about unity to now making this request to God for the unity of, of the people. And you see this in verses in verses five and six. In fact, Paul, Paul uh, prays in verses five and six, and then he teaches in verses seven to 12, and then he prays again at verse 13, which is just a lesson for us. It actually even frames how we come to our Bibles on Sunday morning, isn't it? Oh God, give us help. Here's your truth. Oh, God, help us to be encouraged by this truth. Uh, that The study of the scriptures is always framed by this humble posture of heart, knowing that we need God's help to understand the scriptures. For the man without the spirit of God, the truth of God is foolishness to him, Paul says to the Corinthian believers. Without God's help, the book is a dead book. So Paul's, Paul prays here for God's help. And if you look at verse five, it's really interesting to note that Paul prays, acknowledging that God is the one who gives endurance and encouragement. But what strikes us because what Paul just said a, a moment ago is that scriptures is that the scriptures are what give us endurance and encouragement. And then now now Paul is saying that actually comes from God who gives endurance and encouragement. And, and so we see that the, the source of our endurance and encouragement is the scripture sourced in God himself. Which just remind us that this is a divine book. This is sourced in God and his goodness, his purposes and revelation. It's not it's not a, a magic book that you can re read removed relationally from the author of the book. It's through his intended purpose that scriptures come with the effect that they have on our lives. Because God encourages us. He reveals himself to us and we're encouraged from his revelation. It's sourced in God himself. And so Paul prays here that God who gives the endurance and encouragement that we need, he prays that God would grant that these Christians here would live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. It's literally in the Greek text, text Paul is asking that, the, that God would give to you to think the same thing among yourselves. Harmony has a nicer ring to it, and it makes sense of what Paul's getting at. But just, just listen to that, that God would give to you. So where's the source of this? Is unity something that we can work up in our own in our own strength, in our own fervor among our congregation, it absolutely is not. This is a gift from God. This is a grace gift from God that God would give to you what? To think the same thing among yourself. Which, which is harmonious. This is harmony. But Paul's prayer is that God would grant that these Christians would be rooted in the truth about Jesus Christ together, which doesn't mean that these Christians have to agree on every single thing. There are, there are secondary issues in the Christian faith. In fact, Paul's just addressed some of those in the earlier portion of his letter. 
Some Christians have significant convictions about dietary rules, no doubt held over from Jewish practices and things like that. There are, there are various convictions that we may have in the Christian life, but there's a centrality and a unity of mind according to Christ Jesus that Paul prays would mark out these believers. And, and why is Paul praying for them? Well, he's, he's praying that this would be the case so that God may be glorified by the people as they have one mind and one voice. In other words, Paul's request for harmony, his request for one-mindedness among the people of God, isn't an end in itself. The point of unity is not unity. Paul's telling us that the point of unity, as it accords to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, is ultimately that we would glorify God in, the communi- in, our, in our community of, of, of faith, in the community of believers. And, and we understand what glorifying God means and that we, we're living a life that ultimately brings him honor. You, you remember that word glory, as Paul would understand it, is rooted in a Hebrew, in a Hebrew uh, etymology where the, the Hebrew word kavod uh, initially spoke to something just weighing a lot. So actually, Eli, uh, when the prophet Eli, we read about that a while back in 1 Samuel, when he falls over and breaks his neck, the text tells us because, it's because he was overweight. It's really the word kavod there. It's a word for that's translated later as glory. It's a weight word. And, and the reason it is, has, has started to be, appear as, as this glory kind of worship concept is because in the, uh, in the uh, communities of the day, when the farmer would bring his grain in, he would weigh the grain, and that grain would then be worth a certain amount. It would have a kind of weighty worth. And so then this, this, this notion of glory developed, and that as we think about something's worthiness it's worthwhileness how do we how do we measure that well it's a kind of weighty worth which is why the psalmist can say things like he does in psalm 19 how how are we going to measure the weight of god the weighty worth of god well the heavens declare the glory of god you want to put something in a scale that can start to weigh out how much god is worth how about if we just put the totality of creation in that scale and at least that's a place to start And, and so when paul is saying what he's saying here He's he's calling Christian believers to be united together in the reality of who Jesus is and what it means that we're following him, not just for the sake of unity itself, but for the sake of bringing the weighty worth of God to a place where it can be displayed for others to see, which we see is so critical in terms of church unity. But what happens when Christians are unified? Well, we enjoy each other's company. We, 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 we flourish in our encouragement under the gospel. People come in and they recognize this is a place uh, filled with those who love each other and who will care for each other and who, and who want to be together and, and who are loving one another. And not because they're all so lovable all the time, but because Christ has first loved them. It's a wonderful thing to, to, to see the gr- a group of people loving God, loving others. Ultimately, that brings glory to God. What happens when Christians aren't unified and Christians are fighting? Everybody knows about it. Right? And the name of God is defamed. The name of God is not glorified, but instead is drugged through the mud because, oh, it's just like those Christians to be fighting like they're fighting or whatever, whatever it is. And so we see why this is such a crucial prayer on the part of Paul. He's praying that God would grant harmony to these believers, that he would grant like-mindedness to these believers, ultimately so that they could live together for the glory of God, that their lives could display the weighty worth of God which is just an encouragement to us in how we think about the purpose of our unity here. It's very easy to think about the purpose of unity uh, being just we enjoy the unity because we enjoy the unity. It's a, it's a sweet thing. 
It is an encouraging thing. It is a refreshing thing to be in a community of God's people where we're not uh, backbiting, where we're not uh, do doing all these things that can, that can be so destructive, but instead we're enjoying one another's company, working together for the common good of the gospel, loving each other well, all of these things. Unity for the sake of unity, actually, is it, it doesn't sound so bad. Except that when Paul angles on things here, we actually have this reason that, that stands over and above all of these things that compels unity all the more. Because as we're exercising ourselves in this refreshing reality, ultimately what we're doing is we're putting the weighty worth of God on display. We're demonstrating the fact that God in all his glory is someone to be honored, someone to be revered, someone to be lauded and praised as we love each other well which is just encouraging for our life together. Why are, we, why are we about the business of unity? Well, we're about the business of unity because God grants us that capacity. And ultimately, we enjoy the sweetness of it in order to declare God's capacity, to declare God's own glory. And so these things all start to fit together in our life as we're engaging with one another in a way that's forbearing, in a way that's forgiving, all of these things. Ultimately, we're putting the weighty worth of God on display. And, and, and where, where does that really come from? How do we categorize the weighty worth of God as it's attached to our unity as his people? Well, that's really what Paul impacts for us now in this final section in verses 7 to 13. So he moves from, from grounding us in Scripture to requesting in prayer that God's people would be unified to his glory. Ultimately, all of this is underpinned by what Christ has come to do. All of this is compelled by Jesus. And so if you look there in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 7, Paul begins by saying, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you. you, you your version may read, uh, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. So there we have our connection. Well, what, what does it mean to start thinking about unity to the glory of God? Well, it means welcoming one another, accepting one another as Christ has accepted us. To the glory of God. And then what Paul does is he works through the extraordinary reality that Jesus came in order not just to save, but Jesus came in order to be a promise fulfiller to the Jews and God's extension of mercy to the Gentiles. So, so, so Jesus came in order that Jews and Gentiles, so Jews and non-Jews, could ultimately be united under the mercy of God and brought into the family of God together. So instead of the exclusivity that we find so often in the Old Testament, the offspring of Abraham and these kinds of things, where we think this is only going to mean uh, salvation for Israel, Israel's king, all of these things, we recognize that in Christ, God's plan is not merely to unite Israel as, as, his, as his chosen people, but it's ultimately to unite all kinds of people from all kinds of places as his chosen people. And so what he does here is he unpacks what the Old Testament says about these things. And it's interesting just to note that he actually chooses passages from the three main categories of the Old Testament. So if, if we're reading the Hebrew Bible uh, in, in, a, in a, say, a synagogue context, we would understand our Old Testament in terms of three divisions. You have the writings, which would be like the Psalms. You have the prophets, which would include like Isaiah, as well as First and Second Samuel. And then you have the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you have the writings, the prophets, and the law. And Paul includes quotations from each of those categories as he speaks here about the fact that the Gentiles are going to be included in the praises, that is, singing praises as God's people 
um, as, as part of God's ultimate plan that is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The, the, the last quote there from Isaiah, the root of Jesse. So, so the root of Jesse speaks about David's great descendant who's going to come. Jesus who comes, who will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. And so Paul is making this point that is, in a sense, very particular, especially as we think about the first century context of worship, that for Jews and Gentiles, they are not separated in their worship. They're not separated in their, in their knowledge of God or lack of knowledge of God. But just as Paul has made the point in the beginning of Romans that all of humanity is condemned under God in our sin, he's now making the point here at the end of Romans that all of humanity, whoever will believe in Jesus, is united under God in the family of God through what Jesus Christ has come to do. So this is Jesus's purpose in coming and uniting people who we would never otherwise expect to be united in the family of God. And all of this, according to what God's been saying all along in the Bible. And, and as we put this together, we recognize the implications for our life, even as a local church, are extremely significant when we start to see that as Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to save people from every tongue and tribe and nation, from every, from every preference and style and sensitivity, he came to do this. We're brought together recognizing that the reason for our pursuit of unity with one another is actually not rooted in one another which is such a, such a central thing for us to recognize. It's not rooted in one another. Our pursuit of unity is rooted ultimately in the work that Jesus Christ has done in order that we may live to the glory of God. So that means that for us to live in a harmonious way with each other is actually not something that is sourced in how I feel about you, and it's not sourced in how you feel about me in that particular moment. It is sourced and how well our gaze is fixed on Jesus and what he's done. The central gospel principle that Paul puts into play here is we welcome, we accept one another as Christ has accepted us. So that means that we can look at those who may even appear unlovely to us for a variety of reasons. We can recognize that I am unlovely to the Lord Jesus Christ lost in my sin. And what has he done? Well, he's taken me in in all of my lostness. And all, and all of those things that mark out my contrariness to God, the Lord Jesus came and he purchased my life for me in order that I could have eternal standing before God and enjoy communion with him forever. That's what Jesus has done for me. And so what does that mean for us as we relate to others? Looking at Christ, all who come in, all who have faith in, all who have faith in Jesus, we accept with open arms knowing that this is the kind of love that's first been extended to us. And so in terms of unity as a church, as there can be tension at times, there's tension, obviously, at, at some level in, in the Roman church here that Paul is writing to. As there can be tension at times, we're reoriented in where we're placing our, our gaze in those times of tension. Paul's telling us we're not, we're not ultimately looking at the, at the person immediately in front of us, but we're actually considering what Christ has done for us as we're interacting with the person in front of us. And as we engage in this way, unity is fostered in a congregation, which again becomes an extraordinary Christmas truth. Because, because what, what, what are we celebrating at Christmas? Well, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God forever. The saying is trustworthy and true, Paul says. He came to the world to save sinners. We're, we're rejoicing in that at Christmas. We're also rejoicing in the fact 
Christ lived us in order that we could be remade in our hearts and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and live in an obedient way under the instruction of God, that we would love each other well. That's why Jesus came. That's a purpose we have in this life. And then here we find that Christ also came in order to bring the least likely people together in the family of God, that ultimately through a recognition of what Christ has done, we would live to display the weighty worth of God as his people. And so we have all these purposes that start to unfold as we think about Christmas time. How am I displaying the weighty worth of God by embracing others around me in the church, others who I might not necessarily connect with so easily? How am I embracing, uh, embracing one another because Christ has embraced me? And in doing so, how am I effectively saying, do you see the enormous weight of God's work? Look at what he's done and bringing us together as a family, and bringing me together with you, you together with me, and all the idiosyncratic nature of our lives, all those things that are different. He's brought us together, ultimately to his glory, through Jesus forever. Which ends up being a very Christmassy thing. We're together as we are, week in, week out, day in, day out, as a corporate body of Jesus Christ. We're together as we are, because this is what Jesus came and died to give to us in order that we would respond to that and live in a way that declares the weighty worth of God. So it's a very it's a, it's a very practical thing at the end of the day when we can ask ourselves as we're interacting with others, who can I engage with in a way that declares the weighty worth of Jesus' love for me and that person's life? If somebody were watching, how can I engage in such a way that the weighty worth of God in the gospel is put on display as I'm speaking to them, as I'm speaking about them? as I'm caring for them, as I'm planning to care for them, all of these kinds of things. There's enormous and practical truth here. And so we're, we're thankful for this because ultimately it gives us purpose. It gives us, it gives us a framework for hope, knowing that ultimately through the scriptures, we are encouraged in these things. And what do, what do we leave with? Do we leave feeling like, oh, no, I, can't, I, can't, I don't think I can do this. This is really hard. Where does Paul leave us? No, Paul leaves us as he writes scripture, exactly in the place where scripture leaves us. Look at his final prayer. Now may the God of hope do what? Fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How are we ever going to affect this kind of unity among us? How are we ever going to persevere in these things? How are we ever going to carry this out on our days that are difficult, on our days that are hard, those things, the ups and downs, the different views on secondary matters, all of those kinds of things that can exist? How are we ever going to do it? Well, left to ourselves, we can be assured that we will not. We will not. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be assured that we not only will we carry these things out, but we'll actually do so full of all joy and peace as we believe overflowing with hope. That's what the Spirit of God does. And so there we end this. We're going to engage with one another. We're going to continue to engage with one another, not in the strength that comes from ourselves, but in the strength God the Holy Spirit supplies as we live for the glory of God through the gospel, loving one another and caring for one another well, overlooking offenses, all of those things that we do in order that we might be unified and welcome others as Christ is first welcomed. And so it's a, good, it's a good word for us for this morning. It's preventative medicine, but it's a renewing word, and we can be encouraged in this truth that's here today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we ask that this would be refreshing for us, that we would be people filled with hope from your truth, and that as we consider these things well, we would be unified, unified under the banner of the gospel, unified ultimately to your glory, that 
our lives individually and our life as a local church would display your weighty worth to the world around us. Uh, we desire this. We thank you for the gospel that compels this, the spirit of God who dwells in us, who empowers us. We thank you for these things. In the name of Christ, amen.